Acts 25, verse 13, reading up to the end of the chapter. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom for the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they had come together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth... And the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. uh, Earlier, the the reading out of James there, that not many should be teachers, feels a little bit like a poke. uh, About how the tongue is more dangerous than anything. Um, I confess, you know, every week I I sit down at some point and wonder, what the heck am I going to say on Sunday? Uh, And it's something of a small crisis every week uh, since becoming a pastor, and it's often followed up by a small crisis on Sunday afternoon when I think of all the things that I should have remembered to say while I was up here. And sometimes it's a reflection of the things that I said that I shouldn't have said. And I end up with a general sense of apprehension, uh, hoping I didn't screw everything up too badly. And I know pastors are not the only people who have to deal with those kinds of feelings because I I know that even as a young kid, long before I was in this kind of position, I I remember lying awake at night, and I'm sure all of you have done this, analyzing the things that I said a week ago, conversations and and things I should have said and things I shouldn't have said, wishing I had said more, wishing I'd said nothing. Uh, Regret and self-doubt and second-guessing can be a very paralyzing way to live. I saw a cartoon this week uh, uh, where a, a guy finds a magic lamp and he rubs it and, the, and a genie comes out and says, all right, you get three wishes. And he says, well, my first wish is that I would stop second-guessing myself all the time. And the genie says, really? That's what you spent your first wish on was that? 
And he says, well, hey, it's my wishes, and I can do whatever. Hey, hey, hey. And then, you know, like the genie does the little finger guns thing, like, you know. You know it's funny. You know. Um, but last week, a couple people expressed some relief at the end of service. Not just because my sermon was over, which is always a relief. Um, but because some folks weren't sure where I was going for part of the message. Because I had posed the question of whether Paul appealed to Caesar out of some sort of misguided hope in Roman justice, the idea that maybe Nero could actually help him in this situation. And ultimately, my conclusion was, in fact, no, uh, that I think Paul was relying on the promise of Jesus to get him to Rome primarily. However, it is fair enough to say that I think Festus certainly assumed that Paul was hoping Caesar could help him. Uh, he hears Paul appeal to Caesar and figures this nut job thinks that Nero is going to be a help to him. And I think he was inclined to reject Paul's appeal from the get-go, but on further consultation with the legal advisors, he's decided to let it go. But it's also true, I think, to, to say that Paul's behavior last week came from a mix of motivations, probably. Because that's true of everything in life, right? I write a sermon... Every week, almost every week, right, as long as I'm here, not that they're always good or helpful, but I, I do it, and I partly do it because God wants me to, and I feel like it's the right thing to do, and it's my calling, but if I'm honest, I also do it because I'm a people pleaser, right? So there's an idolatrous element a little bit in there, right? And part of me does it so I won't get fired, so there's a financial component as well. And similarly, I'm, I'm faithful to my wife, partly because that's the right thing to do, but also the benefits are too good to pass up, Right? And, uh, and I'm also too lazy to find anyone else. So there's a mix of motives, <laughs> right? Every good thing we do comes from a, a blend of good and bad motives, ultimately. So that doesn't mean we shouldn't do them. It's just that we should be aware of that fact. As long as we're in this flesh, our motives are going to be a corrupted, muddled mess. So I don't think Paul, even as a great apostle that he was, that he was too holy to experience frustration, Right? Uh, and I submit that last week's text was proof of this. I think he was fed up with the whole situation. I think he was angry with quite a few people. So while I believe Paul's appeal to Caesar was largely rooted in his faith in Jesus' promise, I believe he also showed something of a weakness last week because he left a lot of things unsaid in that hearing. He presented no gospel. Uh, he showed a little bit of a temper, understandably. Uh, he got a little bit saucy with the governor, right? And again, I don't think any of that was an actual sin on Paul's part, but if it, was not, it wasn't the bold gospel focus we've come to expect of Paul either, right? He asserted his innocence, he doubled down on his Roman rights and accused the governor of being a partisan and then demanded to see the emperor. I mean, it was stirring stuff, but it's not the clearest presentation of the gospel we've seen from Paul in Acts so far, right? Well, then we get to today's passage. And, and, and this passage is a passage where Paul is conspicuously absent for most of it. Uh, he is the subject of discussion, but he has no lines. Uh, he doesn't make an appearance until the very end. It's a fairly rare passage in Acts in that respect. There's no believer present in most of the account today. Instead, we have a vignette of three unbelievers discussing Paul. And what's remarkable is that somehow, in the midst of that, the heart of the gospel comes through. Not from the lips of Paul, but from the lips of Festus. 
That shouldn't be possible, but I think we're going to see that it's true. One of the things left unsaid in the narrative is what happened directly after the final verse uh, uh, from last week. Paul appeals to Caesar in verse 11. In verse 12, Festus gives his consent sort of reluctantly or something, you know, it seems. Uh, But then there's a gap, really, between verses 12 and 13. A several-day gap, in fact. And it's a gap that is entirely consumed, I think, with one question for Festus. What the heck am I going to do with this guy Paul now? Festus is a man of his word. He, he is he's intending to send Paul to Nero. That's what he said he's going to do. But you can't just ship a prisoner to the emperor without explaining why. And Festus, Festus is not a man to waste time. We've already seen that. We saw the way that when he first came here to, to Judea, he immediately went to Jerusalem. Like three days into his visit here, he's already going up there to, to, to go and, 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 and get to know the people up there. He's not even comfortably unpacked in Caesarea, you have to assume. Uh, the fact that he made his way quickly back to the capital after only about a week spending time there. And then the fact that he held Paul's new trial immediately, the day after getting back to his headquarters, right? He's not even spent a full four days in the capital yet, and he's already holding a new hearing for Paul. Festus is a man of action. And yet, he's been sitting on this Paul situation now for some days, as Luke puts it. Some days could mean anything. (laughs) Three days, a week, months, I don't know. You almost get the impression that Festus is stalling. You can picture him leaving that hearing, going to his office that evening, sitting at the desk to prepare a letter to Nero, and just sitting there looking at the blank page in a daze. Like me writing my sermons some weeks. And... Look, writing to the emperor is probably, it's always going to be an awkward situation, right? He doesn't get a whole lot of fan mail or anything like that. I I remember seeing an episode of All in the Family some years ago, and and Archie decides he's going to write a letter to President Nixon, and he starts it with, Dear Mr. President, Your Honor, Sir. And, of course, the son-in-law makes fun of him, and then he has this dream where he, he dreams Nixon is so impressed with the letter that he reads it on television, live, you know. And he gets a, dear Mr. President, your honor, sir. Now let me tell you something. I love this opening, he says. You know. <laughs> it's, it's very funny and it's ludicrous, but it had to be much worse writing a letter to Nero than writing one to, to Nixon, right? Even if you're one of the governors of one of these you know, various outlying districts, you know, how do you, what do you do? Dear Mr. Emperor, your honor, sir. There's this guy, Paul, and uh, you see, it was like this, my honor, your honor, you know, honestly, I don't think Festus has any idea how to proceed with this case at this point. So the letter is sitting there, unwritten, maybe partially written, like an unfinished project on the honeydew list, you know. And then a lucky break happens. Visitors show up. I love visitors when I should be working. <laughs> Jason knows all about that. He's, he's bailed me out of quite a few working situations says, now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Well, this is great. Just what Festus needs to take his mind off things for a little bit. Now, for those of you who are confused by the presence of a king and a governor, if we still haven't established how the weirdness of Rome works, I'll explain. This king is yet another client king of Rome. His kingdom is adjacent to Judea, roughly to the north and east. 
So it would be good courtesy to come and meet the new neighbors, right? Uh, So King Agrippa is performing a political courtesy, but he's also a welcome sight because he knows the local politics a little better than Festus does. He's been here for a bit. Now, who is this Agrippa? That's where things get fun all over again because his full name, naturally, is Herod Agrippa II. Even Luke is so tired of that name that he simply just drops it out of the conversation. But this is yet another Herod. Uh, This Agrippa is the son of the Herod who killed James and was eaten by worms, which also means that he is Drusilla's brother, which makes this Agrippa's, it makes Agrippa Felix's brother-in-law. Sorry to make your head spin, but it gets even better. Um, This particular Agrippa had essentially grown up in Rome. He was very close to the emperor Claudius. He was brought up in that household. So when his dad died of worms many chapters back, he was 17 at the time. He was living in in Rome, uh, being raised in Claudius' house. And there was some talk of making him the heir of his father's throne in Judea, but he was young, and Claudius decided to put a procurator in charge. Four years later, Agrippa's uncle, also named Herod, king of Chalcis, he died. And at that point, now he's 21 years old. Claudius decides, all right, you're old enough. And he grants him the uncle's throne. And later, Claudius transferred him to another kingdom and expanded his lands and such. At this point, Agrippa has been a king, a client king of sorts, for about 10 years. And he had a reputation as being an advocate for Jewish rights in Rome in some instances, but he's more pro-Rome than anything. And ultimately, some years later, when the Jewish rebellion started, Agrippa tried at first to kind of be a peacemaker, but ultimately he ended up serving on the side of the Roman army against his own people. But at this point, he's a king who knows his way among the Jews and the Romans, so Festus is glad to talk to someone with some intelligence of these issues. And he even brings Bernice along, so it's nice to have a feminine presence in the room. But who's Bernice, you ask? That's where things get even more convoluted, because you may have assumed that Bernice was Agrippa's queen. That's intentional. It's what Agrippa wants you to think. In reality, this was his sister. Uh, Agrippa, Bernice, and Drusilla were all siblings. And like Drusilla, Bernice has a colorful history, and actually she outdoes her sister. Uh, Bernice and Agrippa were close. Weirdly close, if you catch my drift. They had always been, apparently, uh, so that rumors got around the empire. Now, at this point in the story, she's already been married twice. The first husband died. The second one she got tired of, and she ran away from him, and she ran to Agrippa, her brother. So this relationship has been a scandal throughout the Roman nobility for some time, and yet Agrippa insisted on taking her to formal meetings and addressing her as his queen. Later, she moved on from her brother and had flings with Vespasian and with Titus, two future emperors, while they were busy besieging Jerusalem. So both of them reportedly knew her in the biblical sense. Bernice got around. Okay. So once again, these are not reputable people. It's a very strange, backward, and scandalous bunch of heathens. Uh, They are also powerful people. They don't strike you as particularly religious. So this is not what I would call obvious fertile ground for the gospel, right? These people are, are sexual deviants, politicians, and imperialists. It's a walking soap opera. And 
it does seem to be funny because Paul seems to be developing something of a ministry to scandalous upper crust women, but uh, Luke doesn't dwell too much on the point. He doesn't really have to because at the time that he's writing this, his readers would have known all about it because rumors spread faster than books. He doesn't have to go into the grisly details. He simply confirms that at this point in the story, Bernice was in fact with Agrippa. But put yourself in Festus's shoes. A king like Agrippa shows up to visit you with his sister, and you're the new governor of this territory. Hey, thanks for coming. You know, it's good to meet you. What do you talk about? It's kind of hard to have a conversation about family life in this context right now, isn't it? So Festus does the intelligent thing. He talks about the issue that's been on his mind since he got here, this guy Paul. He says... As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the, Jew, the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day I took my seat on the tribunal. I ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. It's kind of fascinating to hear Festus's perspective here. He sounded so sure of himself at the hearing. He maintained order. He, he made a decision. He, he honored Paul's appeal at the end of the case, but he's admitting to Agrippa that, honestly, the whole case is odd. Something about this whole thing doesn't really sit right with me. I have misgivings. Festus thought this would be a straight criminal case, or maybe even a political case would have been easy to understand. He expected the Jews to make some charges, and then he would try to investigate them. He's trying to be a good governor. But when the Jews show up, the whole thing just turns weird. And frankly, Festus didn't know what the heck they were talking about, because it's all just foreign to him. So what did they talk about when they were talking about Paul? Verse 19 says, Rather... They had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Wait a minute. I, I don't remember hearing any of this at the hearing. I mean, it was just last week we read that. And I, I made the point last week that Paul was awfully quiet in the hearing overall. He never did present the gospel. He was pretty quiet on that point. Then how is it that Festus walked away with a clear-eyed picture of what the heart of the gospel is. I ask that because I think he just hit the nail on the head. Festus walked out of that hearing, and even without understanding or believing it, he knows what the heart of the issue is. The question is the resurrection. And that's what he walked away with. Sharp guy, Festus. Some guy Jesus was put to death by one of my predecessors 25 years ago, and Paul claims he's alive. That's the heart of it. Now, please notice that Festus didn't even get this from Paul, did he? He pieced it together from all the other nonsense that his accusers were saying. Somehow, while Paul stood there silent, too exasperated to give a grand gospel speech, somehow... His enemies, the Jewish elders, surround him and say all kinds of horrible, untrue things about him, and yet Festus was able to read through the fog and pinpoint the main issue is this hope of the resurrection. Everything else is white noise. 
Now, Festus is not a believer. Certainly not at this point. He just articulated the heart of the gospel in spite of that. More clearly than Paul did at the hearing. And make no mistake about it, that really is the heart of the gospel. To believe the gospel is not primarily to affirm a list of certain doctrines or or a philosophy of life or a certain moral code. I mean, we have all those things in the Christian faith, and we do teach them, but they are not the heart of the Christian hope. Christianity is not just a way of life. The heart of it, the biggest question, is whether or not Jesus is alive. Because if he's not alive, none of the rest of it matters. Why care about difficult doctrines like the Trinity and explaining that to anybody? Or obscure doctrines like the Filioque Clause? Or why talk about eschatology issues? Why worry about living a moral and godly life? Why argue about Jesus' other miracles? Why is it worth arguing over how best to imitate Christ? Why would any of that matter? The famous bracelets that were so popular, what would Jesus do? WWJD, that's an irrelevant question unless you answer the bigger question of what did Jesus do? As Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, the rest of the debate is meaningless. Paul would be just another rambling eccentric. And the world is full of such people. And that wouldn't explain why these guys hate him so much. Any beggar on the street can give you a philosophy of life if you give him the time. The only unique thing about Paul is that he really believes this guy, Jesus, is alive, and yet he's not crazy. He was good buddies with Felix. He was good buddies with your sister. (laughs) And Festus has to admit, he doesn't know what to do with that. Verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate these questions... I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So it's an important question. How do you investigate the gospel? These truths that we proclaim are so wild, so outlandish, so earth-shattering. And Festus is right. The answers are not going to be found in a Roman courtroom. It sounds like he thought maybe the answers could be found in Jerusalem. But now he's stuck trying to write a letter that will explain this whole situation without making him look crazy in the process. Festus is wrestling with some serious stuff here. And I think it's about more than just a letter to Caesar at this point. The whole thing is strange and new to him. What do you do with that? How do you send this guy to the emperor on the charge that he believes some street preacher from Nazareth who was killed is actually not dead. Why is this one claim so important that Paul is willing to sit in prison and even talk to Nero about it? It just doesn't make sense. But now Festus has laid the whole case out and he's waiting for some advice from Agrippa. And again, Agrippa knows the area. He spent some of his childhood there. He knows some of the history of the place. And again, it was his great-grandfather who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. And it was his great-uncle that had killed John the Baptist and mocked Jesus on his way to the cross. His father had killed the apostle James. And he was also from a line of Sadducees who denied the resurrection on principle. So one would expect him to have an immediate opinion of this matter. 
It's simple, Festus. Behead the guy and move on with life. Why are you losing sleep over the issue? This guy is obviously a nut. But what does Agrippa actually say? Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said Festus, you will hear him. Tell me something. If you ever travel to another city other than Allentown and you go with your significant other, or let's say even with your sister, and you get to stay in some posh hotel and you're being treated like royalty, let's just say hypothetically, would the idea of spending one of your days visiting the city listening to a local prisoner sound appealing? My, my brother is a cop down in Philly. He works in Kensington, under the L. He sees a lot of colorful characters doing colorful things. If I go to visit my brother and he says, boy, you should have seen some of the nonsense I dealt with today. That's typically an invitation to listen to the story, yes. It's not a literal invitation to drive down Frankfurt Avenue and interview the locals. <laughs> to hear what kind of fascinating things they have to say. That's because talking to the local nuts is not typically something I associate with leisure time. It's a weird request to make, and yet here's Agrippa, a local king, sincerely asking not just to see Paul as a spectacle, but to hear him as a messenger. I want to hear what he has to say. Somewhere in this weird story, Agrippa's curiosity has been sparked. And maybe he sees something in this resurrection rumor that he needs. He's a pretty serious sinner, even by worldly standards. The Romans are scandalized by the guy. And yet maybe he could use some good news. Now, I don't want to overstate the case, but doesn't this whole scene sound an awful lot like evangelism? I mean, seriously, Festus just summarized what the gospel hope is. He gave just a hint of the good news without even believing it. And Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, says, I want to hear more. One unbeliever says to another unbeliever that these other unbelievers said something about Paul believing Jesus is alive. And this godless son of persecutors says he wants to hear more. I want to hear what this guy has to say about the resurrection. That's amazing. And Festus, man of action that he is, promises, I'll make it happen. True to his word, Festus arranges a hearing the following day. It says, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Not only unreasonable, probably dangerous. 
Now, I'm choosing to end our passage right now on this cliffhanger. Uh, First off, it wraps up the chapter very neatly. Uh, But also, because I want you to see what is already happening before Paul even says a word. Paul is not really the focal point of this passage. He has been essentially mute since the hearing, and even at the hearing, Paul didn't exactly have a lot to say, and he left a lot more unsaid than he said. And so far as we know, Paul hasn't shared the gospel with anyone since Felix left. And his last public hearing kind of feels like a lost opportunity. But picture the new scene now. Paul gets dragged back into the main hall where the last hearings were, but the scene has completely changed now. See, this hearing is not a judicial hearing anymore. His case was already decided. Festus has made that clear. The appeal was accepted. He is going to Rome, so this hearing is not about deciding Paul's fate. This is basically an invitation for Paul to preach. This meeting is for the benefit of his unbelieving listeners. Gone are all the hostile Jews. Paul walks into a room full of eager listeners. Festus is here, but he's no longer sitting as a judge. He's more of a curious student of what he's going to say. Agrippa and his sister are here. They're very interested to hear Paul. They're the whole reason for this production. But Luke adds that all of the tribunes, the military officers, were also here and all the leading men of the city. Basically, anyone who's anyone in Caesarea is sitting in this room. And they're all here explicitly to hear Paul give his gospel presentation. How does that happen? That's the crazy thing. No believer has said a word in this entire chain of events. Paul's enemies screamed at Paul during the last hearing. Festus reads between the lines, realizes the crux of the issue, that it's about this resurrection thing, and next thing you know, Herod Agrippa, the military, and all the city leadership are lined up to hear the gospel. And once again, Paul hasn't done a thing to win his listeners over. He hasn't lifted a finger. Interest in the gospel has grown in spite of him. How can this be? How can there be this much enthusiasm? All because Festus says it would be unreasonable not to get the rest of the story. It's like my grandmother saying, it'd be a sin, you know. (laughs) How do you explain it? How does Paul succeed without even trying? Well, we know the answer to that. Because the answer is that Paul's not the main character in the story. We've said it before, but this book is not primarily the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the early church. The Holy Spirit is working and spreading the story of the resurrection, and he's using his enemies to get the job done. It spreads like gossip. It spreads faster than the rumors about Agrippa and his sister. So this whole new chapter of life under Festus did not have a promising start. Paul had, understandably, kind of written off Judea, but God hasn't. He launches a last-minute PR blitz for one final performance, one last chance for Paul to present the gospel in the land of his fathers. The last time Paul was in this room was an absolute fiasco. Yet ever since, interest in the gospel is spreading faster than the Delta variant. And now Paul walks into a room that is fully prepared to hear the gospel. He gets a second chance at this thing. And I think we'll see in the coming weeks that he doesn't waste it. He goes from tired and cynical in the last meeting to being back on his A game. 
And was Paul successful in that? Probably. Because how else will we have a record of the conversation between Agrippa and Festus? Someone in that palace, whether it's Festus himself or Agrippa or Bernice or one of the servants or some of the soldiers, someone was able to report this private conversation to Luke when he wrote the book. Therefore, I think it is ultimately fair to assume that even the false accusations of Paul's enemies led some people to be saved. He was too frustrated to even fight back, and the kingdom grew anyway. All that's to say is maybe I worry too much about these sermons after all. Some weeks I wonder if I said it all, and I wonder what I left unsaid. And sometimes we have a visitor, and I wonder, was this my only chance to say what they needed to hear? But I'm not the main character in the story, and neither are you. Festus has only a very limited picture of what the gospel is even about. It was just a scrap. And it was mixed mostly with falsehoods, and yet his story leaves Agrippa wanting more. And I think the biggest thing I take away from that is that people are hungry. Hungry for the hope that only the gospel can offer. So hungry that they will jump on even whatever distorted scraps people give them. We have no idea how hungry Why would anyone guess that someone like Agrippa, the biggest, boldest sinner in the room, would want to hear the gospel? The Holy Spirit is active, even through our biggest enemies, even through lies and slander and malice. The Holy Spirit is actively creating that hunger. So if you ever feel like you blew an opportunity to share Jesus with someone, I would encourage you not to despair. The gospel is bigger than you, and who knows what the Holy Spirit is stirring a hunger in? Who knows what gospel rumors are getting around? The kingdom will not only prevail over darkness, the Holy Spirit can even use the darkness to show the light. And I know that sounds like a Bob Ross quote, but it's true. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of your word. We thank you for second chances, Lord. And we thank you that even when we are busy screwing up or we don't say enough, Lord, or we trip over our words, Lord, our our tongues are, are dangerous, just as James wrote. They're dangerous and they're clumsy. Most of us are not fit to teach. And yet, Lord, we believe that you're at work. And we see the way the Spirit works, Lord, and we've seen it in our own lives, and we see it in Scripture. And we have no idea how hungry people are, the most recalcitrant sinners. Lord, help us to trust that, to believe that you are at work, Lord, and to present these scraps, Lord, what measly scraps we're able to offer even. Lord, in full faith that it's not the power of us, Lord, or our words, Lord. It's the fact that the Spirit is at work. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.